coming to a, uh, a topic such as we're coming to today requires uh, that I give some opening remarks before we jump into the message and the topic. First of all, uh, recognizing the obligation that a pastor has and the twofold obligation at the very least. First of all, the obligation that a pastor has to teach and preach the whole counsel of God. For a pastor to just pick and choose his favorites and preach on those week in and week out is not what he's called to do. He's called to take all of what God reveals in his word and, and teach it. The second obligation is, uh, I think, for a pastor to not ignore the cultural issues of the day, but instead boldly take on those cultural issues and speak when the Bible speaks clearly about those topics and those issues. Uh, I believe as well that uh, not only is there an obligation of a pastor to teach a whole counsel and also address cultural issues of the day, but there's also uh, a, re- a reality that there's danger in being silent. The f- just a couple of the dangers, first of all, is apathy. Uh, if we do not teach the whole counsel of God, then Christians may begin to just ignore biblical instruction and just be allowed to continue in their lives without any recognition that God has a different plan for their life. They just become apathetic about Scripture and just think that, you know, well, it's a good book to read on occasion, but it's not really that important. The second danger of silence is actually heresy. That uh, we as Christians would then fall into the culture and just capitulate to the culture and just allow the culture to determine what is moral and what's not just live accordingly. But with no ability to defend the position, what else are we to do? Especially in these complex and difficult times and difficult subjects. One of those subjects that uh, is often avoided, unfortunately, by pastors and by churches and by Christians in general, and trust me, the temptation is strong for me to avoid this passage, this uh, topic as well, is, is the topic of homosexuality. The reason for desiring to avoid it is you know, simply two, twofold, I think, as well. First of all, just the fear of retribution. As we know, our culture does not take anyone disagreeing with it on this issue. Quickly labeled, quickly discounted, quickly attacked, quickly maybe even destroyed if possible. But it's also the challenge and the reason to avoid it is it's a complex issue. There's no easy answers. It's a challenge. It's hard to address it. However, this morning I'm going to uh, take that obligation seriously, seek to diminish the danger of being silent, and choose to step right in and deal with this issue and this topic of homosexuality. This message today, though, is not meant to be an exhaustive message where I cover all of the, you know, little pieces of it, right? Because it's really impossible for me to do in one message. The reality is, is when uh, I felt like the Lord was leading me to this topic and then it was time to teach it, I, 
I uh, considered for a moment, I said, there's just so much here, I could teach a whole series on it. We could do four or five weeks on this topic pretty easily. But I felt like the Lord said, no, let's just do an overview this time, and we'll see what happens later. And so the point of this is to be simply that, just an overview of the topic. But I have two goals in mind this morning. The first is to address the arguments for homosexuality not being wrong. So I want to address that in a couple of different ways. One, what the culture says, and then second, what churches actually have said. And so we'll look at it from a cultural perspective and a theological perspective. I want to address some of those main arguments and at least just, again, not get into deep with those, but just give a, just kind of a surface answer to them. The second part, and perhaps even the more important part, uh, especially I think for this congregation, is how we respond. To, to spend some time talking about how do we, as Christians, engage homosexual, homosexuality and gay people and lesbians, and how do we engage this culture in this topic? Certainly, again, not an easy one for us. There are some uh, books, however, I jump in, uh, of interest that I have uh, looked at and read that uh, have spoken a little bit to me in regards to some of what we're going to get today. And those books are, first of all, Is God Anti-Gay? Question mark. Questions Christians Ask by Sam Alberry. Just so you know, Sam Alberry is what he would call a Christian who has same-sex attractions. So uh, he uh, has written this book in order to, one, to deal with the theological realities of the topic of homosexuality, but also to deal with how do we as a church embrace those with same-sex attraction. Second uh, book is Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality by Wesley Hill. Wesley Hill is also a, a Christian who he describes himself as a gay Christian. So again, he's not living out that lifestyle. He has same-sex attraction, but he uh, is, uh, considers himself to be a gay man. And he uh, writes in his book the same kind of mindset, to be able to deal with some of the theological issues, but also to really dive into how we interact and how we can respect and love those who are in this lifestyle and how we can do that in the church and outside the church. The final book is more of a hermeneutical book on uh, the theological perspectives of homosexuality. The title of the book is Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, and it's uh, Homosexuality, and it's written by William J. Webb. He's got an interesting uh, hermeneutic that he uses in order to come to his conclusions in regards to what Scripture teaches about these three topics, slaves, women, and homosexuals. So I just also wanted to caution you, those are three books, but there's, there's so many books that have been written on this topic nowadays. I mean, just in the last 10 years, it's just coming out like crazy. Uh, and so uh, recognize that there's a lot of good books out there that speak to this each issue in a very biblically uh, uh, pr uh, proper way. However, we also must, and we know this, but we must remember too that there is a portion of the church that has decided that homosexuality is not a sin and not condemned in Scripture. And so there are a lot of books that are supporting that perspective as well. Not that we shouldn't read those books as well, just to know what they're saying and where they're coming from, but it would be important for us just to recognize that there are two sides to this story. So, let's uh, not necessarily dive into this topic, but maybe let's tiptoe into the shallow end of this topic for a little while. The first issue in regards to this issue or this topic or the first consideration is the equality of sin. 
James 2.10 tells us that all sin is equal. All sin separates us from God. There's, there is no difference. doesn't matter what the sin is. If it's against God's will, against God's morality, it is separating us from God, and I would argue is also separating us from each other. Sin destroyed the relationship that Adam and Eve and mankind has with God, with each other, and with creation. All sin is equal. The Bible does not isolate homosexuality. It doesn't point it out separately from other sins. It doesn't just exclusively focus on homosexuality, but the Bible does speak about sexual sins. And it says all sexual sins are actually treated the same way. The reality here, the problem that we have as a, as a church is that I think we have, uh, we've gone soft on a lot of sexual sin. Premarital sex is kind of just accepted nowadays. We hardly ever hear of anyone confronting a, a young person or a teenager or 20s and their whatever about them living with their, you know, not their, who they're not married to yet. You know, they're living with their boyfriend or living with their girlfriend. It's just accepted. And we as the church have gone quiet in large part on that. Uh, even in regards to pornography, which is just kind of ignored and kind of swept under the rug oftentimes. And even adultery is becoming something that is just, you know, uh, you know within divorce and within marriage and all those kind of things. It just, it's, it's, we, we have gone silent or gone soft on these sexual sins. And so because we've done that, it makes it really hard for us as a church then to stand up and say something about homosexuality. Because Scripture treats all sexual sin the same. And so why, as a church, do we not? Our tendency is to, to really focus in on the homosexual sin and not worry about the other sins. Well, wait a second. We've already capitulated, in essence, on those other sins then, right? How are we going to have a voice if, we don't, if we're not equal to what Scripture teaches on all of the sexual sins? So although all sin is equal, we need to also understand that there is an inequality in the punishment of sin. We see in the Old Testament that there are certain sins that are punished more harshly than others. We can take from this a perspective that God does see that there is kind of a hierarchy of sin. There are worse sins than others. All sin separates us from God, from each other, and from the creation. All of it does. However, some sin is kind of a bigger deal than other sins. Some sins have a greater damage, do a greater damage than other sins. And it is true in Scripture that the strongest terminology and the strongest punishment is, for, is given to sexual sin. Not just homosexuality, but all sexual sin. Leviticus 20, verses 11, 10 through 21, lists a whole bunch of different sexual sins that all have the punishment of death attached to them. So God takes sex very seriously. He takes these sexual sins as something that's it's a big deal. It's, it's something that is drastic and something that we need to really have a heavy punishment for because of what it does in, in God's kingdom. So then the next question is, well, so what's the big deal? Why is that such a big deal? Why is sexual sin such a big deal? Why is it set aside or set apart from other sins? First of all, the reason that it's a big deal is because it destroys what God has created us to do, which is relationships. God has created us for relationship. Sexual sins destroy relationship. 
first of all with him, just like all sins, but also with each other. It destroys relationships that God places a very high value on. He says this is what it's all about. This is success. This is salvation. To know God and the one whom he sent. That's salvation. This is success. This is what it means to be a Christian. So the very foundation of why God created us is being destroyed by sexual sin. And this is why he puts such a high punishment. He holds it in such high regard. The second reason, the reason it's a big deal, is because it destroys God's order, creative order of things. He has created us and created the world with a certain way that things are meant to be. There's a purpose behind them. They're just not arbitrary. He just doesn't go, yeah, that'll be cool. Let's do that, right? No, everything has a purpose. He created us, male and female. He created a natural order of how male and female should interact with one another in regards to physical intimacy or sexual contact. And it's within the context of marriage. We see that God places this high value on the purposes and the the position of marriage. Marriage is not just something to be taken lightly. Our culture has really taken it lightly nowadays, and it's just no big deal, in and out, whenever we want, right? And and it's just happening all over the place. But marriage and divorce, marriage and divorce, marriage and divorce. But God says, no, 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 this is a very important, you know, thing that I've created here, this marriage, it's not, it's not something to take lightly. And the reason that he'd done that is because of three things. First of all, the purpose of marriage is that it reveals to us or gives us an opportunity to experience unconditional love. And the reason this is important is because this is the kind of love that God gives and experiences. This is the highest type of love there is, this unconditional agape love. That he's calling us to. And we're meant to, in the marriage, experience some of that. Because unconditional love means that you know a person. You know them well. You know all their strengths and their weaknesses. And you still choose to love them. So it's our way in, the purpo- uh, in marriage. Is, it's our way to experience God's love. Second of all, it, uh, the purpose of marriage is unity in diversity. That we would be different, but we would be united This is, again, an opportunity for us to experience God's nature. God is three in one. This is part of the foundations of how he made things, to have different things that become or are one. The marriage marriage relationship is meant to be two diverse people, different people, coming together as one so that we can experience some of what the Godhead has experienced. Finally, marriage is for, the purpose of marriage is for procreation. To, to have children, to create something new. And again, this is our way of experiencing what God is like. Right? God is a creative God. He has power to create something new. He's given us and allowed us to enjoy that. And the purpose of marriage is to be able to create something new, to enjoy and experience some of what God experiences. Within that marriage relationship is this physical intimacy. And again, he, he holds physical intimacy up high. It's, it's got high value in sex. It's not just something that you just do with anybody and everybody. It is something that is meant to be special. It's something that's meant to be specific situations. 
God puts limitations on this for a purpose. First of all, he, it's a, it, it, physical intimacy is an expression of our spiritual commitment to another human being. As a result, it's limited to marriage. It's not meant to be shared with everyone. It's meant to be the spiritual commitment, spiritual, physical commitment to one other human being. Second of all, it's an expression of, our, of a Trinitarian relationship. God has this Trinitarian relationship. Marriage and, and physical intimacy is meant to be an example or experience of that Trinitarian relationship. You have two different individuals, a male and a wife, a male and a woman, right? And they come together with God, who is the third person of that Trinity, and then we are one. This is why there's limits to physical intimacy in a monogamous relationship. You don't you can't just have multiple partners. You have one partner. It's meant to be a trinity. Finally, high value of physical intimacy is because it expresses, it's an expression of unity and diversity. Again, the idea that we have two different people created differently, not just in personality, but actually in body, that come together and they're one. Again, this is why there's limits in physical intimacy to heterosexual marriage. This is why it's a big deal, because it destroys God's foundation of relationship and God's foundational order of things, the created order of things. So now let's jump into a couple of uh, the perspect cultural perspectives that we hear commonly about why homosexuality is okay. The first one, and perhaps the most popular, is we were born this way. God made me this way, and some in the Christian circles as well, some who are Christians, would go and grab Psalm 139 and say, see, God knew me in the womb. He knit me together. And so that means that, you know, this is the, the way I'm born. And since I'm born this way, that means the assumption is that we are born perfect. It's okay because, you know, I've, I was born this way, right? And so the assumption is that we have been born perfect. However, there's some inconsistencies that we see in our culture with this perspective of the assumption that we are born perfect first and foremost, is the reality that when a baby is born with birth defects, we don't think twice about trying to heal those birth defects or fix those birth defects. If indeed all humans are born perfect, then even a baby who's born with birth defects, we should just, you know, hey, that's just the way it is. This is the way God made them. Perfectly dysfunctional or whatever it may be, and we just accept that. The reality is, that the assumption that we are all born, born perfect is not true. What is true is that we were all born imperfect. We were all born imperfect. Psalm 51.5 says it, it, that not only are we born sinful, but even at conception we were sinful. So the point is, is that sin has so infiltrated us that not just our souls, not just our actions and our body, but our physical bodies, our DNA has been impacted and affected by sin. There is not one human being that is born in this earth who is born perfect. We are all born imperfect. The next cultural perspective is that there are, that, 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 you know, it's just natural cravings and natural attractions that I have. To the same sex. So because they're just natural, they must be good. I mean, they're just in me. This is this craving I have or this attraction. I can't help it. It's just the way I feel. It's just there. And the assumption here is that our cravings, because they're natural, are good. But again, 
seems to be a self-defeating argument in our culture because we also have a culture that spends a whole lot of time dieting and exercising. Why do we resist the craving to eat more and more food? Why do we resist that temptation if really all of our cravings are good? The truth is this. All of our cravings must be controlled. It must be. They, 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 just because they're natural doesn't mean that they're good. Matter of fact, I think we should assume that our natural cravings are the things that we should be suspect of and say, oh man, that's probably not good. Because why? Because we are all born sinful. We're all built, born imperfect. And so we need to recognize this and clearly taught in Scripture that our cravings must be controlled. 1 Corinthians 6.12, right? I mean, in this passage, it's kind of launched me into this topic. It, it talks about that not, every, not everything is beneficial, that we shouldn't be mastered by anything. I mean, we're, we're free to do a whole lot of things, but we shouldn't do all those things because some of those things aren't good for us. The cravings that we have for those things aren't good. Jeremiah 17.9 even says that heart is deceitful and wicked, Right? The final thing that culture, well, not the final thing, but the final thing I'll look at today that the culture tends to say in regards to this to support the homosexual lifestyle and perspective is that, uh, well, they love each other. I, I mean, they love each other, right? I mean, it's okay because it's, you know, it's not like they, you know, it's not like one's forcing the other, right, to do anything. This is, this is a mutual love relationship that it is okay because of their love for one another. And, yeah, I mean, if they love each other, how can it be wrong? I mean, really, love that song, right? Um, anyway, the, the assumption here in this perspective is that love defines morality. That love defines morality. That, you know, that, that love is the highest good. And that you know, everything else is under that. So as long as anything you do, as long as it's in love, then it's okay. Because love is this highest morality. It def defines morality. However, again, I think our culture is is self-defeating, again, in this perspective. Because let's look at the things that people do out of love that our culture doesn't accept. Polygamy, incest, pedophilia, bestiality. I mean, these are the things that our culture says, nope, that is not good. But the people that are practicing those things all would say that they love the individual, they love the individuals in polygamy. Right? Wait a second. If, if love is the highest standard, if love defines morality, then who are we to say that those things are wrong? The sad thing is, is the way our culture is going, I don't know if in a year or two I'll be able to say this about these areas. Because I think our culture will eventually kind of just accept them because of this perspective that love is the highest morality. The truth is, though, is that morality defines love. 1 John 5, 1 to 3 A's, all about our love for God and how do we love God by obeying his commandments. It, it, you know, love is just not some arbitrary thing that we define. Love is defined by doing God's will. Love is defined by, by you know, 1 Corinthians 13, right? This unselfish, unconditional love. It's defined by God. It's not defined by us. And the reality is, if we are not moral beings doing God's will, then we are not being loving. Next, I'd like to jump into the theological perspective. Like I mentioned earlier, we have uh, in the church now, we have uh, many churches 
that have embraced the perspective that homosexuality is not a sin and not condemned in Scripture. As a result, they have uh, had to, because of Scriptures that do say that it's wrong, have had to try to kind of, you know, work their way around those passages. And so I want to look at a few of those passages to just kind of, again, just briefly touch on each one in order to uh, communicate what is going on here and give you at least something to say to those that would try to argue these points. First of all, the point is that Old Testament law is not relevant for today. So, you know, I mean, the, the passages in the Old Testament that are talking about homosexuality, we just, you know, and, the, you know, you should be punished. We just need to ignore that. I mean, and they, would, they will laugh at us Christians all the time. Well, 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 what about these other things? You know, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? Or why are you, you know, doing, you know, have these clothes that have more than one type of, you know, fabric in there? That's against, you know, God's law, too. So what, you know, and they try to call us hypocrites as a result. And so their, their argument, again, is that Old Testament law is not relevant today, and therefore homosexuality, at least the passages in the Old Testament that say that, are it doesn't matter. Truth number one, some Old Testament laws are no longer relevant. That is true. Some Old Testament laws are no longer relevant. To be specific, there are laws about cleanliness, which in Mark 7 and Acts 10, Jesus and Peter has an experience with God about, you know, this reality that we don't have to worry about the cleanliness laws anymore. We, we can eat anything. We don't have to worry about washing our hands, all that kind of stuff. Those cleanliness laws are taken care of. They're not something that we need to continue to follow as a result of Jesus. Second of all is the sacrificial laws are no longer relevant for today. John 2, 21 and Mark 14, 36, Jesus is like, you know, hey, I am the sacrifice now. So we don't have to worry about sacrificing and what we do when we're sacrificing all these animals and stuff because it's done with, right? Jesus is the sacrificial lamb once and for all, right? So there are some Old Testament that is no longer relevant. However, truth number two, moral law is still relevant for today. Old Testament moral law is consistently condemned. And here is the issue. It, is, it crosses from the Testaments. Over and over again, we see moral law in the Old Testament condemned, and that is repeated in the New Testament. This is how we know it's moral law. Right? Because God is, you know, showing us, look at this, the moral law in the Old Testament, moral law in the New Testament. All of the commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The Ten Commandments, right? They're all repeated in the New Testament, the fact that we need to live by them. Uh, uh, in regards to homosexuality specifically, uh, it's not just in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 where homosexuality is condemned in the Old Testament. It's also in the New Testament, Romans 1. Uh, 26 and 27, 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, the passage that we're on today. And then others will say, okay, well, that's great. Peter and Paul say it, but Jesus doesn't say it. So because Jesus doesn't condemn homosexuality, then it's okay. And then I would challenge them with this passage, Mark 7, 20 to 23, where Jesus doesn't use the word homosexual, but he does use the word sexual immorality, which is a catchphrase. It's a, it's a word that includes all sexual sin, which Sexual sin includes homosexuality, right? The next uh, perspective, theological perspective, that some have come to say because uh, is in regards to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, we know the story, right? Lot was living there, and a couple of angels show up to tell Lot that he needs to get out of the city because God is going to destroy the city. And while the angels are in Lot's house, there's a bunch of men from the square that come in banging on Lot's door and say, give us these angels so that we can have sex with them, Okay? So uh, the passage goes on. Well, th th those in our 
Uh, some of our churches look at this passage and they go, wait a second, you know, we need to deal with something because it looks like, and it's been traditionally understood, that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. And we get that from this you know, passage where you know, the angels are there and the men are the, you know, this whole story. And so they come back with basically the perspective that the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality but was a lack of hospitality. Now, we laugh, and I do too, but the reason that they do that is because of one passage, Ezekiel 16, verse 49, where it does allude to the fact that, they were, that Sodom and Gomorrah were not uh, taking care of the poor and those in need. And it does not, in that list, list sexual sin or sexual immorality as the reason that they were destroyed. However, it's pretty easy to look into the New Testament and find a couple of passages that do list that, 2 Peter 2, 6-10, and Jude 7, both allude to sexual immorality as the, as the perversion that was going on. Now, certainly, they were not very hospitable either, and they were destroyed because of their sins, right? Many sins, not just sexual sins, but also other sins. The third uh, theological kind of uh, angle that, is come, that homosexuality is come at by some Christians is that ancient homosexuality is different than modern homosexuality. Basically, the argument goes something like this. In, in ancient times, in Rome and, and even beyond, beyond that, that the, you know, it, wasn't, you know, it wasn't two uh, uh, consenting adults who were practicing homosexuality. It was more of a, a man and a boy, and it was almost kind of this rape kind of perspective in, in that culture. It was, very, it was centered around idolatry and this kind of thing. And so they say because of that, we, we have to look at these passages and redefine them because when they're, when they're talking against homosexuality, they're, they're preaching against that type of homosexuality, not the two consenting, loving adults type of homosexuality that we see today. Two truths on this. First of all, it doesn't take much effort to, re- to do some study on these cultures and to recognize that these cultures certainly practice the type of homosexuality that they're saying they practiced, but that wasn't it. They actually practiced all types of homosexuality, including homosexuality that was, you know, just consenting adults who would participate in that. Matter of fact, so much so, so, much so truth to homosexual marriage was even practiced quite regularly, especially in the Roman Empire. Uh, even Nero was one who practiced or married one of his adult lovers. All right, so those are theological uh, concerns. Uh, just Again, I'm just scratching the surface. I know it's not a lot, and I'm sorry that it's not. I can't go into more detail on that, but it's just the reality of this summary of this uh, passage uh, or of this issue. Not issue, but topic. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to skip the next point. Sorry about that. So for those of you who would like to fill in all your notes, we're going to be really upset because I'm not going to talk about cultural climate. We're going to move right down to Christian responses just for the sake of time and to get on moving here. So a couple of areas that I want to address here with uh, Christian responses. First of all, public interactions. How do we engage in this topic and this issue of uh, homosexuality in our culture? How do we we engage that? And uh, Just give me three things we shouldn't do publicly. First of all, do not decry homosexuality publicly. And, And what I mean by that is that... You know, so often we as Christians have been pigeonholed because all they know us for is what we don't agree with or what we hate or what we're after, right? What we call a sin. You know, and, and if that's all they know, if we just post on our Facebook, you know, homosexuality is a sin and here's all the re- verses why, uh, there's no opportunity for us to have a conversation. All that comes across to the world is that we're judging them. 
All that comes across in the world is we're just condemning them. And they just, they're just going to close off and there's no conversation, there's no opportunity to build relationship. So let's not decry homosexuality publicly. Don't expect, and, and here's the deal, we can't expect the world to live like we do as Christians, right? Now, I preached about this a couple of weeks ago, right? They, don't, they haven't bowed the knee to Jesus. Jesus is not Lord. For what, so why would they live according to Jesus' words, right? And, and so when we start decrying publicly homosexuality or any other sin for that matter, we are just, you know, we are just in some sense, uh, we're expecting, we're judging a group of people who have not given their life to Christ. Second of all, don't condemn people. It's not publicly, but also just don't condemn people. It's not our job. It's not our job to look at someone and say, oh, well, they're obviously homosexual, and say, well, they're, they're going to hell. That, that is not our job. That is God's job. God is the one, and we looked at this again a couple of weeks ago, God is the one who judges out those outside of the church. Now, if they're professing to be a Christian, and they're living out a homosexual lifestyle in our church, then, yeah, then we need to have a conversation with them. Here's the reality, is that people don't go to hell because of their sin. They go to hell because they don't know Jesus. And when we look at someone's sin and then just immediately condemn them for their sin, what are we doing? We've got sin in our own life. If they knew what our sin was, couldn't they just do the same thing? So we don't know people's hearts. We don't know what's going on in them. So we need to give them the benefit of the doubt on that. Second, or finally, we, we, we cannot be afraid to boldly speak God's truth when asked. So many of us are, are hiding in the shadows because we're afraid of what's going to happen. We're going to get rejected. We're going to get attacked if we tell people what, what Scripture really teaches. But we need to be bold in this and be, stand strong on it. Not that we just go blabbing it to anyone and everyone. But that when we are asked that we can stand on Scripture and say, yes, God's Word says that homosexuality is a sin. And here's the deal. It's not our opinion. It's not our belief. So often we get asked this question, well, I believe that homosexuality is a sin. No, 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 no. It's not my belief. This is God's Word. It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what our opinion is. What matters is what God's Word says. And so in this issue, we need to make sure that we say, God's word says that homosexuality is a sin. Doesn't matter what I believe, doesn't matter what they believe, this is what God's word says. But we need to do this when we speak the truth, we need to speak it in love. 1 Peter 3.15, be prepared to give an answer, but do it with gentleness and respect. We are not there to point our finger in their chest and say, yeah, you're homosexual and you're going to hell. No, that's not, no, only God's against you. No, that's not what we're doing. That is not the purpose of standing on God's word. We need to do it with gentleness and respect and love them, care for them. And that leads to the next, the personal interactions. How do we interact personally with them? That was public. Well, what, about public uh, what about personal interactions? And this is what I want to land on for a little bit here is, is the love piece. We need to love them. And understand, and I've preached this several times, that understand that love is only communicated in relationship. We can't just point from afar in our pews and say, oh, I love homosexuals, but have no relationship with homosexuals. If we have no relationship with a gay person or no relationship with a lesbian person, we are not loving them. 
Now, we may want to love them in our hearts, but do we have a relationship with them? We have to get past our fear and recognize that the only way to interact with these people is through love because they're human beings. God loves everyone, and we need to love them as well. So we need to strive for ways to love them, to interact with them, to be in relationship with them. So many of us, if not all of us, have family members who have come out saying that they're gay or lesbian. And so many of us, when we hear that, we throw up the hand, we put up the wall, and we walk away from them. Because we're afraid, or because we're disappointed, or because we can't believe it. Whatever the reason, that's the opposite of what we should be doing. When we hear that a family member comes out or a friend comes out and says that they're, they're gay or lesbian, we should be going to them to deepen that relationship so that we can get to know them better, to love them and to care for them, to listen to them, to hear their words, to hear their struggle, because they are struggling. Trust me, when they come out, that's not an easy thing for them to do. It's a battle that they're fighting internally. And if they've had any exposure to the church, it's a battle they're having spiritually. So when we hear that, when they come out, we need to go to them and develop that relationship. Church members that are battling same-sex attraction. We need to be open to that conversation. We, We cannot just ignore it. We should assume that in our congregation, there's at least a couple of people that are struggling with same-sex attraction. The question is, are they free enough? Are they, do they feel like they can share with that with anyone without getting condemned? Now, granted, you know, feelings are, you know, and that's, there's a lot of personal stuff going on there too. But are we creating an atmosphere where Christians with same-sex attraction are able to have somebody to talk to in our church? With other Christians, where they can struggle with that together. Where they can talk it out. We, we need to be open to that. We need to create an atmosphere here where th- those conversations can happen. That same-sex attracted Christians recognize that they have a place that they can have that conversation, that they can share that struggle. We need to listen to them, we need to not judge them, and we need to invite them to church, for those who aren't involved in church. We need to invite gay and lesbian people to church. We need to fight for their soul. Do we understand that? They are just as lost as any other lost person if they don't know Jesus. Why are we allowing sin to keep us from reaching out to them? Again, this is, you know, when we see that sin, that should draw us to them. Right? We don't avoid the prisons. Well, some of us do. We don't avoid the prisons because we know there's a bunch of sinners in there. No, we create ministries to go to the prisons so that we can share the gospel of Christ with these people who need it, obviously. And we need to do the same thing when it comes to this homosexuality, homosexuality issue. Salvation, and salvation starts in the heart, not with our actions, right? We, we don't change our actions to become perfect, and then we can accept Jesus and get saved. No, no, we get saved, we accept Jesus, and then he begins to work that out in us in our life. Okay, finally, there's, there are a couple of limitations that we need to be aware of as well. And the limitations is this, and it's just like any other sin. A Christian who rejects God's word and continues in their sin, we have a responsibility to hold them to account. 
And that may, if they refuse to listen to us, that may mean that we need to kind of stop interacting with them, stop having that relationship. But it's with Christians who know God's word and have decided that they're going to live opposite of that. But again, and, and again, this is not just homosexuality, this is any sin. And again, our church, I'm saying and again a lot, aren't I? But the, we, we as a church have lost our ability to speak to these issues because we've allowed other sins to just go on rampantly for years and years and years without ever confronting them. So now it looks disingenuous when we go to the homosexual and try to confront them on that. Right? We need to be consistent. Also to recognize that this is not a gray area. Because we have, this is a battleground even in the church, and we have some churches that have capitulated to the culture and have come over to the other side and said that homosexuality is not a sin and the Bible doesn't teach that, we need to recognize that that's, there's a split there. And, but also recognize, and, and because there's a split, we tend to think, oh, well, this is kind of a gray issue. It just kind of depends on how you, receive, how you understand Scripture. I just want to be clear, it is not a gray issue. I mean, I'm willing to sit down you know, theologically with anyone and let's walk through these different arguments. But I think it is quite clear what Scripture teaches consistently, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that homosexuality is a sin. This is not a gray issue. This is a black and white issue. All right, worship team, come forward. Understand that our culture wants us to be isolated. They want us to be afraid. They want us to fear engaging the homosexual world and, and, and engaging in relationships with them. They want us to fear that. They want us to fear be saying anything, speaking out, and, and, and proclaiming what God's word clearly teaches. They, they want us to fear that. They also want homosexuals to be afraid of the church. They, they don't want them to have conversations with us. They don't want them to realize how much love we have. Because of our culture and the, and the fights that are going on there, the bullying that's happening and, the, and just the chaos anytime a Christian stands up and says homosexuality is a sin. We are in times that require great courage and great wisdom. Choosing, we need courage to choose to engage in these relationships, not avoid them, not to run away from them choose to engage in relationship even though there's a strong possibility we'll be rejected because no matter what we do if they find out we're a Christian or if they ask us the question and we have to tell them what God's word says they very well could just reject us but we still love them and we choose to try to engage second of all we need to choose to stand for the truth even though there's a real possibility we'll be attacked. Again, it's not my opinion. It's not my belief. It's God's word. And we have to have the courage to stand. Again, we're not trying to bully anybody. We're not trying to shout anybody down. We're not trying to just blanket make these you know, judgments and condemnations. When someone asks us, we have to be ready to speak God's truth in love. But understand that if we are rejected, if we are attacked, we are in good company. Jesus did this very thing. 
He went and hung out with the sinners, the tax collectors, the people that rejected by, were rejected. The people that the, the religious folks would say, no, what are you doing with those people? He went out there and he got rejected. He got attacked. But he still did it because of this. Luke 5, 31 and 32. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus has come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. May we follow Jesus into this difficult and challenging issue of our day for his glory. Let's stand and sing a song and then we'll go to communion.